Bible version you, you, you want to choose at home when you read personally. But I want to encourage you that um, for the time of preaching, if you could uh, maybe try to invest in uh, your own copy of the Legacy Standard Version, that's the, the, the Bible that I teach out from, and it'll just help, help me uh, make teaching easier and help, help you listen uh, in an easier way. Um, just even the, particular in the way I preach, my style is, uh, I always, I, I go to the text, I want you to look at it, I want you to look at the word, I want you to look at the verse, and if you don't have the right version, you'll, you'll, you'll struggle to find the word I'm pointing to. Um, so you can invest in a legacy LSV, or you can go online, if you have a smartphone, you can just uh, pull it up, uh, they have a, a text there you can pull up for free, I think there's an app too you can, you can download for free, so that'll It'll be helpful. We can be on the same page. Um, thank you for uh, those few a few weeks ago. We passed out books, uh, and uh, you know it's just a, some events. You know we uh, passed out some books, and then uh, Brother uh, Alfredo uh, mentioned we should knock on doors, and then uh, last Sunday's sermon about finding the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. I just just had a burden for our, our neighbors, and and uh, so I've been praying about, thinking about, still in the planning stages of, of just a, a new evangelism ministry, and uh, we'll probably talk to some of you and get your input on it. But um, I, I kind of I'm going to call it. Uh, Brother Peter thinks it's kind of uh, we could work on the name, but um, I'm going to call it Knock Knock Arlington, Knock Knock Arlington, where our church's goal would to be would 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 to be to knock on every door in this city knock on every door in the city uh, and, and try to invite them to church and share the gospel. And um, in that endeavor, we would be looking for this, this lost coin, right? We, be, we would be looking for the lost sheep. And uh, it's going to take some time to reach every house in Arlington, maybe a couple centuries, uh, but it's a good goal to have, right? And uh, so I, I don't know when we're going to start it. You know, I want it to be uh, on a kind of non-pressuring uh, some of you, you know, it's it's not easy to go up to some stranger's house and knock on the door, and some of you are more uh, wired to, to, to uh, you know, you prefer a, more of a relational evangelism. So I, on one hand, I, I want this uh, this outlet that we can do corporately to uh, preach the gospel to our neighbors. On the other hand, I don't want to make it seem like uh, there's the the really you know special uh, you know Christians, and then there's the rest of you all, and so uh, I kind of want to thread the needle on that point. Um, but uh, if you could just pray for me, pray for that ministry. Uh, I think it's, you know, I was just thinking about all of you. you. You guys do such a great job, and you're so sacrificial, and you serve, and everything you're asked that you do, and and you're generous. And uh, I, think, I think we can, I think we can do this. We can uh, just reach out uh, and uh, share the gospel. You know, a lot of people have a kind of a faulty notion of church growth. I think the, the prevalent idea is, you know, you you find a pastor, and the pastor is a is such a good preacher that uh, uh, you know the, the church grows because of his, of his preaching ability. And uh, if you're uh, waiting for that, if you're look, just watching me do that, let me just tell you, it'll never happen because I'm not that good of a preacher, uh, and I'm okay with that because. First uh, Timothy three says that you, I simply need to be able to teach, uh, but the Bible says that the, the way that we grow is by what making disciples of all the nations. That's how you grow. Each member, it's a it's a team effort. 
And we're, we're reaching out to our lost neighbors and friends and family. We're, we're sharing Christ. We're inviting them to church. And that's how our church grows. Instead of uh, getting the right guy and, and, and waiting for him, for all these people to think he's a great, uh, a great orator, instead of stealing other people from other churches, right? Uh, a lot of times a church will blow up. And, and all it is is that, you know, people are moving from different churches. Um, and so... We want to do it the right way, right? We want to grow in the right way. And uh, you know what? There's a lot of lost people out there. And, and, and we don't need to compete. We just need to be a cognizant of our mission and our goal. So pray, pray about that. If you have any ideas, uh, any some input on how we can kind of get that started and make that really viable. Maybe not now. It's kind of cold now. Maybe when it gets a little warm, right before Easter, we could start that ministry. But I just want to share my heart with you. Well, before we dive into God's word, would you, would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we, uh, we pray for lost, and, and uh, we know that um, the worst kind of lostness is to, to, to not know you, to not be known by you. And um, Lord, if there's one area I think all of us can agree that we could grow in, it's the area of evangelism. And uh, this is why we're here to make disciples of the nations. And so we pray for this ministry that I introduced to our congregation, Knock Knock Arlington. Pray that you would uh, put it together. We pray that you would lead us to homes, uh, to, to talk to the unbelievers, to, to, to earnestly find that lost coin, to earnestly find the one out of the hundred. Father, in these stories, you're not asking us to find thousands of people. You're, you're, you're asking us just to find one. One coin. One sheep out of a hundred. Uh, the, these are the, the, the percentage, percentages. One percent you're, you're, you're asking us to look for. And so uh, help us to be sober-minded sober about our calling and help us to be realistic about evangelism. Uh, but, Lord, help us to be faithful. We just want to be faithful. So give us a heart that starts now uh, with those that we know in our daily uh, walks of life. Uh, open up doors. Give us courage. Um, bring people to us. Uh, uh, open these doors. Make these gospel conversations. Help them, help them start uh, easy, uh, smoothly. Um, and, Lord, would we see a conversion? Would we see people coming to faith? Would you uh, allow us to find that one lost sheep and that one lost coin and, and, and the prodigal son and the self-righteous son? Uh, Lord, uh, give us your heart. Lord, give us uh, your joy uh, over one sinner who repents. And so would your joy be our joy? Would we... Uh, pursue that joy in our faithfulness to preach uh, Christ. And so, Lord, oh, begin now. Work in the hearts as we, in the hearts of those we, the houses we will go to. Work in their hearts now. Prepare them now. Uh, would would you uh, raise up a, a few, at least a few of us, to be a part of that ministry and um, equip us to know what to say and and have these kinds of conversations and that uh, we would be invited into uh, people's homes. And so we ask for your favor in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And by the way, I, I remember I, I, a week ago, just to add to a little bit about, uh, I was on nextdoor.com, you know what that is? It's a kind of neighbors and online community, and, and one person talked about Mormons who knocked on her house and were trying to uh, convert them to Mormonism, and there were like uh, at least 40 or 50 comments, and so I was interested in what they said. And what surprised me was none of them were upset, none of them were angry that the Mormons were knocking on their door. Even though they disagreed with Mormonism, they, they, they felt it was a noble mission. They, they respected what they were doing. So uh, it, it's not what you think. People aren't uh, upset when you knock up. Most people, one or two were like, oh, I, I, don't, I wish they didn't come. But uh, most of them were, were really uh, appreciative of that fact. So, well, turn to your Bibles to Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Brothers, I speak in human terms, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, uh, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. And what I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as, to, so as to abolish the promise. Or if the inheritance is by law, it is no longer by promise. But God has granted it to Abraham through promise. Why the law then? It was added because of trespasses, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This morning, we're going to consider the Abrahamic covenant. If you want to understand God's Word, if you want to grow spiritually, more important than finding modern-day relevance from Scripture, believe it or not, it is knowing and understanding the Abrahamic Covenant. The reason for that is because the the Abrahamic Covenant is really the story of of Scripture. The Abrahamic Covenant undergirds the storyline of redemption from beginning, from Genesis to end to to Revelation. Every book after Genesis until the end of Scripture unfolds and expands the promise of God first made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We must know the Abrahamic covenant because it is one of the most fundamental themes of the story of Scripture. And that is of supreme practical importance to you because you're not going to mature or grow and change unless God's story becomes your own story. Every person has a story. Everyone has a beginning and an end. There are people and places and events and experiences and hardships and the highs and lows. All of these things have shaped you into the kind of person that you are. Everyone has their own personal narrative. 
Everybody has an autobiography that you could write that could be turned into a movie. I don't know if everybody would watch the movie. But before God saved you, your, uh, the, the thing is, your story lacked a key person. What was missing in your story were very important truths, key elements, had they been present, would have entirely changed your story. Who was that missing person? What were those missing elements? It was Jesus Christ and the Gospel. It was the Holy Spirit and the Bible. It was the Lord's table and your local church to name some. Then God saved you, and all these key persons of the Trinity, all the major elements of salvation invaded your story, and they began to rewrite your story in the, in the deepest and most radical of ways. When Tina and I first got married, I married out. Our honeymoon was in, in Hawaii, and one of my most pleasant memories there in that, in that one week, it was we were just in the pool, and I was just trying to help my wife rewrite her story. And so I remember taking all that I had learned about her life and up, and, up until then, and, and, I, and I tried to serve her by reinterpreting it according to God's perspective. I would say some, something like, you know, you know, in this part of your life, you thought that God was treating you one way, but, you know, it really wasn't that way. God was, was he was there, and he was doing something carrying those things. and There was never a time when you were alone. He was in the background. He was good and he was sovereign and he was, and you thought you were all alone and abandoned, but God was using those things to bring you to the, the perfect place where you would receive Christ. And, and, uh, and This is what we, we're called to do. We're called to uh, put our story into God's story. We're called to find a better story. And our story becomes a better story when The story of Scripture becomes the new meta-narrative of our lives. As Christians, our personal stories must be reimagined. They must be replaced by God's story in Scripture. And and then out of God's story in, in Scripture, do our personal stories extend outwardly from we we lose our personal stories of hopelessness and pride and shame and sin and guilt and anger and trauma and abuse as we immerse ourselves in the in, in God's story of scripture and out of his story in scripture then do new and wonderful and redeemed stories now flow out from the greatest change and growth happens to us personally as we, we, as we replace our stories with the story of salvation in Scripture. And that's why we study Levit- Leviticus on Friday nights, because believe it or not, that is now your story. That is your history. We, we study Le- Leviticus because Leviticus beco- must become a new chapter of your story. The book replaces the old chapter of the profane and the unclean and sinfulness from the old story of your life with the new chapter of holiness in the new story of your life. And that's why I think there's 66 book in, books in the Bible because you have at least 66 books of an old story that needs to be rewritten and reworked by the 66 books of the story of Scripture. And this is why it is so important that we must know the Abrahamic covenant, we must know what the Abrahamic covenant is. 
because if you don't, you will simply not understand the storyline of the Bible. This is why Paul spends so much time clarifying to the Galatians and to us the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Because the entire story in Scripture is simply the unfolding of that covenant. And if you get the Abrahamic covenant wrong, like the Judaizers do in Galatians, and the Galatians, as a result of the Judaizers' teaching, you get the entire gospel wrong. Even though the Abrahamic covenant may sound kind of uh, seminary-ish and Bible-thumper-ish and irrelevant to modern times, Knowing the Abrahamic covenant and its significance is more practical than listening, listening to a sermon about three ways to find purpose in your life because the Abrahamic covenant is the story of the Bible. And you're not going to find much purpose in your life unless God's story, center, the centerpiece of which is the Abrahamic covenant, becomes your story. But it's been a little while since we've been in Galatians, and so we need to do a little review of what we covered so far. And so if you, if you remember, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatian, uh, Galatia to protect the doctrine of the gospel of Christ from the Judaizers who are preaching a, a false gospel. And the false gospel they're teaching is this. In order to be accepted by God, you begin by faith in Christ. But in order to, to, to complete your acceptance by God, you must be circumcised and keep the rest of the Mosaic law. So Paul begins his treatise on the gospel of grace and the sufficiency, the full sufficiency of Jesus in chapter 1 and go there now and, and, and he says two times he says if, there's, if we, verse 8 uh, an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you let him be accursed to believe, to teach this false gospel of faith plus works ascends you to hell it warrants a divine curse from God And then in verse 11, Paul begins a defense of his character and his reputation and his ministry because the Judaizers, they're lying about Paul. They're telling the Galatian churches, you know what? Paul is a false teacher. Paul first got his gospel from the apostles, and then when he got it, he twisted it. He distorted it. He took out the requirements of the law. And so Paul begins to defend himself in verse 11 and 12. And and he says this, uh, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I, I, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't get my gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. I got it directly from Jesus. And, and this is the, he says as he, as he continues down from verse 11 to the end of chapter 1, he, he tells the story of, of how he used to be a Pharisee and how he was converted uh, radically. And he says the only explanation is that Jesus appeared to me personally because I used to be a Pharisee. I loved the law. I, 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 the law was my life. So what, Jesus meeting him is the best explanation of why I would take out, the gospel, take out the law from the gospel. There's no better explanation. This confidence in meeting Jesus personally and this confidence in the content of the gospel strengthened him in chapter 2 when he went to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church tried to pressure Paul's friend Titus to be circumcised in order to be fully saved. And Paul resisted that pressure. This newcomer on the block resisted the leadership of Jerusalem who still are trying to figure out the implications of the gospel. And Paul says, not only did I resist, 
the Jerusalem church, even I resisted Peter to his face when he capitulated to the Judaizers. That's how confident I was in this gospel of grace. And then from beginning of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 2, he, he defines what the gospel is. What is it? Verse 16, chapter 2, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And then in chapter 3, he begins to make these arguments to convince the Galatians that they need to remain true to this gospel of grace, this gospel of Christ alone. And he, the first argument he, use, he uses is an appeal to their personal experience. He says to them at the beginning of chapter 3, when you fir- first were saved, saved did, were you saved by the gospel of Christ? Absolutely. When you first received the Spirit, did you receive it by believing in Christ or by doing something, by, by being circumcised? No, you did none of those things. So if you received the Spirit by faith, if you, you, if you trusted in the, the gospel in the beginning, then why do you think the, the, the law, which didn't have the power to begin your salvation, why do you think the law would have the power to complete your salvation? If it had no power in the beginning, then it's going to have no power in the middle and the end. So he appeals to their personal experience, number one. And the second argument that he makes is he appeals to the entire witness of the Old Testament to say all of Scripture teaches that we are saved by faith alone. And so he goes to Genesis he goes to Habakkuk, he goes to Leviticus, he goes to Deuteronomy, all to say that the entire witness of Scripture teaches a gospel of grace. And so now we, he moves into this passage today, and he makes a third argument regarding why we should continue trusting in Christ alone. And his third argument is based on a right understanding of the Abrahamic promise and the Mosaic law. And that argument has two main parts that will serve as our two main points of the passage. And point number one, let me give it to you beforehand, the priority of the promise, verses 15 through 18. And point number two, the purpose of the law. You have the priority of the promise and the purpose of the law. And I'm just going to cover the first point today, and the second point we'll look at next Sunday. So this is kind of like a a two-part series about the Abrahamic promise or covenant and the Mosaic law. Point number one, the priority of the promise. The priority of the promise of verses 15 through 18. In these four verses, Paul's fundamental argument for why circumcision and the law is not needed, why it is not necessary to complete your salvation is because of the priority of the Abrahamic covenant over and against the Mosaic law. And in verse 15, Paul begins this argument for the priority of the Abrahamic covenant with a human uh, analogy. Um, uh, he kind of gets, uh, Paul gets a little bit, he, he calms down a little bit. He, he, he becomes more gentle. Uh, remember how he addressed the Galatians at the beginning of chapter 3? He called them, oh, foolish Galatians. Right? That's how he began. You foolish, foolish Galatians. And now uh, he's gotten in a very uh, nice, loving mood. And he begins verse 15 and he calls them brothers. Brothers, brothers, I speak in human terms. A, a 
let me take an example from everyday life. And so Paul uh, draws an example of, uh, from human affairs. He says, um, even though, uh, let me speak in human terms, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. He takes an example from human affairs to illustrate what is true in the divine economy of salvation. And the common uh, understanding of, of, of a covenant in the ancient world was kind of like a, a will that you would write up uh, for your children or a testament. Within the Greco-Roman world, the father could transfer his, his estate while he was alive, uh, while retaining uh, uh, usufruct, or the, the right to use this well until his death. So that means the father couldn't give his state away because it had already belonged to his children. But he did have the right until he died to use this wealth accordingly. And that's what's going on in the story of the prodigal son, by the way, right? He, at the beginning, he divides his inheritance between the two sons. But he still has, uh, he still has authority of how uh, his resources are used, right? He says, bring the cat and calf and... And do this, bring the robe, bring the, bring the ring. Uh, how was he able to do that if he gave his inheritance away to his two sons uh, through this, this means of, a, of this a will, this, this testament common in the Greco-Roman world? When the father did this, the will, the testament was considered to be irrevocable. Once this kind of covenant was ratified, nobody could ignore that ratification. No one could add conditions to it. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very common form of passing on your inheritance. It's kind of like today, if you, uh, if you get older and you, have a, you write out a will and you leave your inheritance to your children or who, who have you, once you're dead, nobody can change that. Nobody can add conditions to it. No, it's yours legally, it's ratified, it is, it, is, it is as good as gold. And so Paul argues from the lesser to the greater from verse 15 and the following verses. And this is the idea. If human covenants are irrevocable, and if they cannot be supplemented, how much more a covenant given by God? Paul moves on to verse 16. It's a parenthetical statement to indicate what, co- what covenant Paul is comparing human covenants to in verse 15. Paul is comparing the unconditional, irrevocable irrevocable human covenants that the Galatians were familiar with in the Roman Empire with, look at verse 16, with the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The beginning of verse 16 is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. What is the Abrahamic covenant anyways? Well, if you remember in Genesis 11, Moses writes about the Tower of Babel. And that's when the human race conspired together to rebel against God. Humanity attempted to build a tower that reached to the heavens. And God, in response, punished the human race. He divided humanity into a multitude of languages and nations. And all of these nations then separated from each other. They spread out into the world. But all these nations still remained in rebellion toward God. So God, because he wanted to save these nations, because he wanted to bring these nations back to himself in reconciliation and peace, he creates his own nation. And this one nation he creates and chooses, 
they would be responsible of restoring the relationship between the rest of the nations of the world and their creator. He would be responsible for restoring uh, this relationship between them. And this nation called Israel would be the result of uh, this generational accumulation of the descendants of one man named Abraham. So the birth of Israel begins when God chooses a man named Abraham and made a promise with him in Genesis 12. We call this promise he makes to him in Genesis 12 the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant. And what did God promise Abraham and his seed or his descendants? What did he promise him? God promised him two main things. He promised Abraham that he would bless Israel. And he promised Abraham that he would bless the world through Israel. God promises to bless Abraham and his descendants Israel in Genesis 12 too. God says to Abraham here, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. God promises to bless the world through Abraham and his seed in Genesis 12 3 when he says to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in verse 16, it's interesting that Paul he, he uses the plural form promises instead of the singular promise because if you read Genesis 12 onward to the end of Genesis, you see this promise repeated throughout the book on several occasions. And every time it's repeated, oftentimes there is more additional information. There are more details about the promise. Now, I hope some of you, at least a few of you, are asking this question, what was the blessing? What? He promised to bless them. He promised to, to bless the world. What was that blessing? What was the blessing comprised of? How will he bless Israel? And how will he bless the world that he promises in Genesis 12? And to figure that out, it's pretty simple. You just have to look at how the term blessing has been used in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So how it's used in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is obviously how it's being used in Genesis 12. And when we examine how blessing is used in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you realize it's always uh, used to refer to creation blessings. Listen to, just listen to me, you don't have to turn there. Listen to these references. Then God blessed them, chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Chapter 2, verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, uh, he created them men and female, right? Uh, he, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1, after Noah got off of the ark, what did he say? God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same thing he said to Adam and Eve in chapter 1, right? It's all associated with Eden and creation, in other words, the blessing God promises in the Abrahamic covenant, listen to me, refers to the reversal of the fall. It refers to the reversal of the curse and the restoration of the garden on earth. 
In other words, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is all that is related to the final days of heaven. And so Paul, in chapter 3, he references that blessing promised to believers in chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand in Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. Verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What does this blessing refer to? Everything that God gives to his people in order to reverse the curse of the fall and to restore heaven on earth. In Galatians, that blessing is explicitly justification, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. And so Paul compares human covenants in verse 15 to the Abrahamic covenant in verse 16, but before he moves on to verse 17, he adds this little blurb, this, this, this brief statement of, in order to correct Jewish theology. He says, by the way, God in Genesis, he does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Paul is correcting the Judaizers' misunderstanding of the term seed. He says to them, this is the problem, Israel. This is the problem, Judaizers. This is the problem, you Galatians, who are listening to the Judaizers. Your problem is that you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant. And you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant because... You've got one word wrong. The word seed. Paul says, it's not plural, it's singular. And this is important for us. This is important for us. The Abrahamic covenant is fundamental to knowing God's story and rewriting our story. Then the term seed And the understanding of that term is fundamental to understanding the Abrahamic covenant. It's really the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. What does it mean? What does the seed of Abraham mean? Well, in Genesis, when Moses writes the term seed in relationship to the promise, every time it's used, it is always used as a collective singular instead of a plural. Now, collective singular is something that can either refer to many or one. So seed, uh, in the Hebrew, you would say one seed for seed. And the English doesn't work that way, because once you say multiple seed, it would be seeds with the S at the, at the end. And so some translations, in order to bring out the collective singular, they translate the word zerah, seed, offspring. Right? And so an offspring, you can have one offspring, and you can have five offspring, right? It can be singular, and it can be plural, right? Sheep is a collective singular. You can have one sheep, you can have ten sheep, right? Singular or plural. And Paul is saying, guys, 
in Genesis, it's never seeds, plural. It's never just plural, where it only and always means many. It's always used collective singular to refer to many or one, but especially one. Paul knows that the term can refer to many. Look at verse 29 of chapter 3. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, right? Many. You belong to Christ? Okay, then you are, then you are Abraham's seed. Multiple, plural. So he knows that. But he's saying there's an other usage of the seed that's used in the singular, and it's used especially in the singular. And, and, and the problem with the Pharisees and the Judaizers, they, they never saw the singular term seed. They never acknowledged that singular usage. They only thought of the term seed in the plural, referring to themselves, to Israel, all of us Jews. And so they concluded that the Abrahamic promise is really just about us. Plural. Israel. And this is why Judaism is so Jewish. And this is why the Judaizers, they wanted to make the Galatians not Christians, they wanted to make them Jews. For example, in John 8, 8.33, the Pharisee said to Jesus, We are Abraham's seed and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The Abrahamic covenant is all about us. It's all about the Jews. We're good, We're good Jesus. And so Paul, in verse 16, he's quoting the LXS. He says, No, you got everything wrong. Genesis in the, in the Septuagint, it's the Greek form of the, the Old Testament that was very common uh, in Paul's day even in the Hebrew Bible, but, but he's, he's, he's quoting exact words from the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, and he says, God does not say unto seeds, spermacine, the plural form of seed, referring to many, but rather to and to your seeds, spermati, collective singular. Moses uses the term seed to refer to the many, but other times he uses the term seed to refer to one person, the Messiah. Let's see for ourselves. And this is important. Go to Genesis 3.15, where seed theology begins. Today, we're going to talk about seed theology. Seed theology. And it all begins in Genesis 3.15. Now... context of Genesis 3.15 is the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Adam's sin wrecks and smashes created order. And God gives the first gospel in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, we're going to do Bible study now, okay? Uh, that word, that word seed or offspring, is it being used in the plural or the singular? Talk to me. Examine verse 15. Is it being used in the plural or the singular? Okay, you have one singular. Who else? Anybody else has an answer? It's both. It's both. Within this catastrophe of the fall makes an important promise in verse 15. And, and this is the promise. God will not allow the serpent to win. To have victory. Even though the serpent manipulated the woman, God establishes this 
perpetual generational conflict between the serpent and the woman. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and conflict between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Right? This generational Satan, all your children and their children and all the the godly line of Eve's children and her children and her children, there will be this war, enmity, right? So in the first half of verse 15, it's clearly the seed is plural. It's being used in the plural. But in the end, an individual from the woman's descendants will rise to crush the serpent's head, while the serpent will only give a blow to the head. And God says, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so, yes, there's this corporate idea in the first half of verse 15, your seed and her seed, right, generations, a, a, a conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness. But the parallel line in verse 15, the second half verse, verse, of verse 13 says what? He. This is a juxtaposition of this corporate notion of seed of many people with a distinctly singular pronoun he. So Genesis 3.15 speaks of a group of people and the verse speaks of one person who will represent that group. Parallelism in verse 15 indicates that this one individual is the representative champion of his people. Notice the singular seed in the second half of verse 15 He doesn't crush the offspring, but the serpent himself, right? God is talking, verse 14, God said to the serpent, what? Verse 15, he, the champion of the woman's seed, who represents all the people, he shall bruise who? You on the head, not your seed. So this parallelism doesn't merely describe this generic generational struggle of good and evil, Rather, it depicts a generational struggle culminating with a final showdown between the respective heads of each group. And Moses said, the winner will be the seed, the singular seed. He shall what? Crush you on the head. And the seed is who? Jesus Christ. Now as we move from Genesis 3.15, Moses includes these genealogies to trace the singular seed promise. Now we go to Genesis 12. Let's look at our second usage of the the word seed. He makes the promise to Abraham in verses 1 through 3, and then in verse 7 he gives more information about the promise. Verse 7 says, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. The seed is what? Being used in the plural or the singular? Talk to me. In the plural, yeah. To your nation, to the nation Israel, you will uh, receive this land. And yet, it's Zerah, collective singular. It's still not a plural. Spermacine. That's what Paul is saying. 
still a collective singular. It's never, ever plural, Paul says. Go to Genesis 13, verse 16. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. Is that singular or plural? It's obvious, right? Plural. So if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Now we go to Genesis 22, 17 and 18. And I'm going to ask you again. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Does the seed here refer to the plural or the singular? And your right answer will kind of depend on what translation of the Bible that you have. If you have ESV, Legacy, you're going to get it right. If you have a, a, a NASB with the asterisk, you'll get it right. If you have another translation, you might not get it right. So, is the seed in verse 17 and 18 referring to the plural or the singular? Talk to me. It's both. It's both. It's both. Just like Genesis 3.15. Look, verse 17, and I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed. Right? That's plural, clearly, as the stars of the heaven. How many stars are out there? A lot, lot, many. As the sand which is on the seashore. How much sand is on the seashore? Lots, many. And then it says this, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Some translations don't have that his. That his is a third-person masculine singular. How do you know when the seed, this collective singular, is being used in the plural or in the singular? You you have to look at the pronouns associated with that word. You have to look at the the Hebrew verb, because the Hebrew verb uh, contains, whether it's masculine or singular, it contains what person it is. And that verb there in the Hebrew, shall possess, is in the third-person masculine singular. And so we know for sure that... Your seed is in the singular. And then, verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Is that singular or plural? Well, you have to uh, you determine this, your seed, because it's collective singular. It could be both. What's the nearest ad- antecedent? The singular seed who possesses of the gate of his enemies. So how will God bless God's people? How will he reverse the curse for these multiple of of people, the stars of the heaven and the, and the sandwiches on the, on the sea, how will he uh, accomplish that? The seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. The singular seed, the champion of, of these people, will what? Crush his enemies, right? In verse 18, and in your seed, in this one singular Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Through Christ, Christ is the champion who wins this blessing for us. Then, so, so before I move on, in Genesis 22, 17, and 18, we have an elaboration of the gospel promise of Genesis 3, 15. It's just an elaboration of what Moses said in the first time he used seed in Genesis 3. Then, now, in the rest of Genesis, Moses focuses on individuals, right? Who foreshadow the ultimate singular seed. He goes to Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And the rest of the Old Testament prophets, they read Genesis, they read, and they pick up on this singular idea of seed. Yes, yes, it's both. It can be both a plural or singular. 
But, but Moses is emphasizing the singular, is he not? And the rest of the Old Testament prophets, they know that Moses is emphasizing the singular, and so they use the term in the same singular way. The book of Ruth has a genealogy that looks like the one you find in Genesis, and Ruth shows how this one seed goes through the family of David. And then in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 12, God says to David, listen to what he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you. Singular seed. Where do you get the singular idea of seed from? From Moses in Genesis. Go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, David knows, David knows that this seed is the is the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent. He knows this. Look at Psalm 110. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I, until I put your enemies as a footstool of your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. So this seed is going to be a king. And, and the seed, look, look at verse uh, 4. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So this seed is going to be a king. It's going to be a priest. And what will he do? He will crush kings in the day of his anger. He will render justice among the nations. Verse 6. He will fill them with corpses. Verse 6. He will crush the head that is over the wide earth. David says, remember Genesis 3.15? My seed that will come from my body. He's right here. Psalm 110. So you see this singular seed, right? Go from Genesis to Ruth, to 2 Samuel, to the Psalms. All these later writers who use this singular seed to refer to the Messiah are using it in the same way Moses understood and used the term. Go back to Galatians. And so Paul, he, he sees the one singular seed as well. He sees it in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. And so in order... To correct, in verse 16, to correct the Judaizers' faulty understanding of the term, he says what he says. They don't understand the Abrahamic covenant because they have misinterpreted the term seed. Because they don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, because they, they see plural instead of seed, they don't understand the gospel. And so what is Paul's point in verse 16? He makes the point... That the reason, listen, the reason why you Judaizers, the reason why you want the Gentiles to be circumcised and to follow kosher dietary laws and to observe the Sabbath, was that the reason why you want want them to be Jewish is because when you look at the word seed, you only see Israel. You don't see Christ. You don't see the singular seed. And if they would have only gotten that one word right, they would have understood the Abrahamic covenant correctly. They would have understood the gospel correctly. And then instead of saying to the gospel, instead of saying to the Galatians, Galatians, you need to be circumcised, you need to become Jewish to be accepted by God, they would have said, believe in Christ, the one seed, singular. They said, you know, in order to be saved, you need to be part of the big seed of Israel. 
You need to be in the singular seat of Christ. In detailed matter in Scripture, does plural or singular matter? You can get the entire gospel wrong and go to hell because you mistakenly took a singular word for a plural. This is exactly how Paul tries to correct the Judaizers' misunderstanding of the gospel. He says this. Oh, by the way, you know what's wrong with your gospel? He does not say seeds unto many. He's referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. That's right. This is the, the gospel genius of Paul. Verse 17, as we move from away from this parenthetical, by the way, Paul, by the way, let me just dismantle your entire theology by pointing out that the word is singular instead of plural. Let me move on. Let me continue what I state, what I began in verse 15. And, and so verse 17 applies the illustration of verse 15 and these human wills and covenants, and he states the main point of the paragraph. He says in verse 17, Now what I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. The Judaizers were teaching that the law was a supplement to the Abrahamic promise. They believed that the Mosaic law was, a, was this advanced version of the Abrahamic promise. And Paul says, man, if you do that, you, you invalidate the covenant. You abolish the promise. And and the law doesn't do that to the promise. And the first reason he says that the law is not a supplement to the Abrahamic promise is, number one, verse 17, the law came 430 years later. I mean, that's a long time to fix something. The promise to Abraham stood alone for four centuries. It tells you it didn't need a modification. Everything was fine. It didn't need to be fixed. It didn't need to be supplemented by the law. The, the promise came first, and the law came a long time after the promise, implying the inferiority of the law, implying the separateness of the promise and the separateness of the law. And the second reason why the law was not a better version or a supplement to the Abrahamic promise is, is found in verse 18. Paul says, for if the inheritance is by law, it is no longer by promise, but God has granted, to a granted it to Abraham through promise. In other words, law and promise are two opposing principles. They don't fit together. The principle is that the very concept of promise and law are mutually exclusive. For if the inheritance is by law, it is no longer by promise. See, if the law of Moses was intended to be the way you're supposed to be saved, then the promise to Abraham wouldn't have been a real promise. If I give you something because of what I have promised, it is not because of your performance. If I give you something because of what you have done, it is not because of my promise. So Paul is adamant here in verse 18, either something comes by grace or works. Either it comes because of the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It is either one or the other. And you can't put the two together. Verse 18, last part of verse 18. But God 
has granted it to Abraham through promise. The word granted here is the verb form of the noun grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. The word Greek word for granted here is kekaristai. It's the verb form. In other words, God graciously, in his grace, gave this blessing to Abraham through promise. And that is, that is just how a, a, a relationship between two people works, right? When you become friends with people and another person, you make implicit, unspoken promises to each other. They're not verbalized, they're simply assumed. In a friendship, you promise to be loyal to each other. You, you, you promise to be committed to one another. There's a mutual trust. And then when you get married, what happens? These promises, they become vows that you verbalize to each other publicly and officially. You don't, we had some recent weddings, right? You don't exchange your personal laws, right? We did Candy's and Evo's wedding, Justin and, and Constance didn't come out and say, okay, these are my Ten Commandments, Justin. Number one, you will do the dishes. Number two, you will never watch football when I want to, you know? No. And it was like, I do, I do, I do. No. There were vows. Do you promise to do this? Justin, do you promise to do this? Do you promise to do this? And what was your response to those vows? What was your response to those? What were your response to those vows? You believed. You believed them. You trusted in the person. trusted the person who, who made the promise. Remember many years ago I was dating somebody. He seemed pretty nice. Two weeks into the dating relationship. Two weeks, nothing happened. I get an email. It's a long email. It's a hundred pages long. Very long. And what did she give me? Laws. You have to do this. I mean, it was idiosyncrasies didn't, she didn't like. You have to you know, wear red instead of blue, and you have to do this. And there was these laws, and if, if I don't obey the laws, it's not going to work. And I was like, okay, what have I gotten myself into? And, and, and it was kind of weird, but essentially, the problem was what? She wanted to operate a relationship based on laws and rules instead of promises and trust. It's just, it doesn't work that way. God promised to Abraham blessing and heaven and salvation and justification and the Spirit and the Christ and, and Jesus Christ to Abraham. And how did Abraham respond? The only way you can respond to a promise, look at verse 6, Abraham believed God. What do we do? Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed. We receive the blessing with Abraham's believer. The promise demands the only response, faith. Before God saved you, what was missing from your story were these promises. Before God saved you, people made promises to you, but they lied to you, didn't they? Before God saved you, people made promises to you who didn't have the power to keep them, even if they wanted to keep them sincerely, because human beings simply do not have the power or ability to make promises and keep them, either because of sinfulness or because of weakness and inability. But when you believed in the gospel, everything changed in your story, right? A 
promise of one seed made to Abraham years ago became the same promise you believe. God's story is rooted in a promise made to Abraham, and that must be what your story is rooted in. And listen to me. God's promise can never be broken because it was made by God himself. Even God's laws... And your constant breaking of those laws cannot break God's promise to you. Because promise is better than a law. The law and the failure to keep the law cannot invalidate God's promise. What is the gospel promise? God says to you, I sent my son to die to pay the penalty for your sins. I raised him from the dead to give you new life. Will you believe in the promise? The gospel is God's vows to you as a husband. He says, I promise you, I will forgive you, I will give you eternal life. My son is the guarantee of that promise. And you can either respond by either believing or not believing. You cannot respond to the promise of the gospel by keeping a law. It doesn't work that way. Charles Spurgeon said, I am throwing all my good works overboard and lashing myself to the plank of free grace for I hope to swim to glory on it. This plank of grace that we latch ourselves onto, that we swim to the shore of glory on, it's made out of of free grace. Charles Spurgeon said again, the gospel is like is, is as free as breathing the air. And this gospel plank is rooted in God's promise to Abraham. May you write Abraham's promise in your new story, a promise that trusts not in seeds, not in people, but in one seed, to your seed. Father, we help us throw out this debtor's ethic. Help us not to live by laws. Would laws not be the center of our relationship with you? How dreary, how burdensome. How would it how would it be possible to love you if the basis of our relationship were We're keeping these laws. It doesn't work in human relationships. And it does not work in a relationship with the divine. Lord, replace this debtor's ethic with the promise ethic. Replace this law-centered relationship with the promise-centered relationship that we respond to by faith and trust. It's the best kind of relationship, Lord. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your promise of not many seeds, but the one seed, the seed that is Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.